by reforming our health care system, by passing serious energy legislation that makes us a clean energy economy, by revamping our education system, by finally getting the financial regulatory uh, reforms in place that are necessary for the 21st century. By doing all those things, we've got a foundation for long-term economic growth. And we don't end up having to juice up the economy uh, artificially through the kinds of bubble strategies uh, that help to get us uh, in the situation that we're in today. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in our luxurious Brooklyn South Bureau. And I'm David Kestenbaum at the NPR Mothership in Washington, D.C. Today is Wednesday, June 24th. And today on the podcast, we'll be talking about what happens when money shrinks and dies, you know, hyperinflation. But first, David, today's Planet Money indicator, please. The indicator is $8 billion. That is how much the Energy Department is going to lend to Ford, Nissan, and Tesla Motors to help develop fuel-efficient vehicles. And General Motors and Chrysler asked for some of that money, and the Energy Department said not to you guys. They said that the loans could only go to, quote, financially viable companies. Ouch. Yeah. Ford, uh, which received $5.9 billion, the bulk of the $8 billion, says it plans to bring several battery electric vehicles to the market and will use the money to transform its plants so they can make those cars. Nissan's working on an all-electric car that it says will be ready for release in 2010, and Tesla is building an assembly plant for an electric sedan. So Tesla has been building these battery-powered sports cars. I don't know if you've seen any of the photos. I actually rode in one a while back. It was a prototype, and it rattled a bit. I felt like I was in, like, the first spaceship ever to take off, and it was kind of scary. But it was that fast. That sounds really cool. <laughs> it rattles in this disturbing way, though. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure they've worked that out. Um, I was profiling one of the guys who's bankrolling Tesla and helping with the design. His name is Elon Musk. He's also got this rocket company called SpaceX, and he's trying to bring down the cost of getting something into orbit by a factor of 10. So uh, I can say this at least. The guy thinks big. <laughs> Yeah, David. Where is my glow stick? <laughs> Get out your black turtlenecks. Okay, I'm sure that's not actually true anymore because on Friday, German Chancellor Angela Merkel will be coming to Washington, D.C. to dance, sorry, to meet with President Barack Obama. And, you know, the U.S. and Germany are obviously strong allies, but uh, occasionally Angela Merkel will say something like this. Wir müssen gemeinsam wieder zu einer unabhängigen Notenbankpolitik zurückkehren und zu einer Politik der Vernunft. Ansonsten stehen wir in zehn Jahren wieder genau an diesem Punkt. And she is doing something there that you just do not hear done very often. She is criticizing central banks. And what she actually says is, we must return to an independent central bank policy and to a policy of reason. Otherwise, in 10 years time, we'll be in exactly the same situation. So what makes this such a weird thing? The whole point of a central bank is to prevent presidents and kings and prime ministers from messing around with the money supply. Because basically, since the history of money, 
presidents and kings and prime ministers have found it irresistible to print a lot of money when they wanted to spend money, and that generally caused a lot of problems. So for most of this century, most major advanced nations and, well, most nations have something of an independent central bank. So it's a, a really big deal when, you know, one of the leading economies in the world, the head of it is, is basically saying our central bank is irresponsible and should do it the way I want it done. So the reason this is interesting to me is that, uh, you know, in the United States, our approach to fixing crisis has basically been driven by one thing, you know, avoid another Great Depression. That's what Ben Bernanke studied. And, you know, when this happened, he's like, this is not going to happen on my watch. But the Germans are haunted by this other demon. And I'll just describe this one piece of paper for you. It's German currency from 1923. This one piece of paper was worth 50 million marks. They didn't even write out the zeros because you'd have to count them. It just says 50 million marks on it. Yeah. We here in the U.S., we, and we've on Planet Money a million times, talked about how deflation is our great dread, that that is so much worse than inflation. But, of course, we've never experienced hyperinflation. We've had you know, bad inflation, 12%, you know, something like that, but absolutely nothing like what's in the collective memory of, of Germany. So I came across this great historical account. It's called When Money Dies, The Nightmare of the Weimar Collapse by Adam Ferguson. And we're going to read you a couple paragraphs here. In October 1923, it was noted in the British embassy in Berlin that the number of marks to the pound equaled the number of yards to the sun. Dr. Schacht, Germany's National Currency Commissioner, explained that at the end of the Great War, one could in theory have bought, i got to count the zeros here, 500 billion eggs for the same price as that for which five years later only a single egg was procurable. The speeches, the newspaper articles, the official records, the diplomatic telegrams, the letters and diaries of the period – all report month by month, year by year, that things could not go on like that any longer. And yet things always did from bad to worse, to worse, to worse. <laughs> it's actually a great read. We'll post a link to it online. I called up Joseph Joffe. He is the editor of the German newspaper Die Zeit. And he says, yes, you Americans, you have your Great Depression. We Germans, we have inflation. There's two, two basic traumas in as far as money is concerned. Uh, in the German DNA, one is 1923, which was hyperinflation, meaning at the very, you know, you've seen the pictures where people cart their their wages home in in um, in carts and try and try to get as fast as they could from their their um, from the office of the factory to the grocery store because if they were if, had they been too slow, price would have risen again. The second trauma, not as dramatic, was 1948 when the old currency of the Third Reich was thrown out and traded for the Deutschmark, and pretty much everybody lost his his or her money, except for 40 Deutschmarks, which was then you know less than ten dollars, um, with which in June 48 everybody had to start out anew. So the the DNA is dominated, so to speak by these two massive devaluations or losses of currency and and property. And that's, I think, why the Germans are so particularly sensitive to to anything that could lead to another inflation. Did Germany have a central bank back then? Did, did we have central banks back then? Well, yes, it did have a central bank. But it was not the kind of – that's where we get back to Mrs. Merkel. 
It was not the kind of central bank that we have today, either the Fed or the the European Central Bank. It was a tool of the government, and the government just ordered it to print money by the hour. See, the nice thing that's the nice thing about that experience, which has kind of um, uh, had, whose influence has gone way beyond Germany and Europe to the United States too. That you have to have an independent central bank that cannot be the tool of whatever government is in power. And so to come back to Chancellor Merkel, what was she yelling about? She was yelling about the independence of the central banks. She meant, of course, the Fed, which uh, she implicitly accused of being beholden to to the government, to um, you know, Bernanke as a henchman and handmaiden of uh, you know the president or... Um, Larry Summers, and injecting too much liquidity into the global system, I think, where she is right. I mean, think about the kind of deficit the United States is going to be running next year, and think about the debt it's, it's, it's issuing. We are talking about a deficit of, what, $1.8 trillion next year? Seems like I hear the uh, hyperinflation affecting your thinking also. <laughs> well, no, because, you know, it doesn't, no, not mine, because... I just tried to to stress the basic difference. In those days, you could have hyperinflation because the bank was the handmaiden of the regime, so to speak. Today, um, uh, Mr. Bernanke in the U.S. or Mr. Trichet in, in Frankfurt would never do that because I think it's now become part of our common DNA that that you want to avoid two things in our lives. We want to avoid 1923 and 1931, the Great Depression. And that explains everything that Western governments, even the Chinese government, have been doing since the fall of the House of Lehman. But I'm not worried about hyperinflation. I'm worried about real serious inflation. I mean, like, uh, you know, the inflation under Carter, which, which reached double digit by 1980. That's serious enough, you know. There, there are just people here who have a different view who I might think when they hear you talk, they say, well, you know, he, he, he grew up in Germany and so that's uh... – No, but I mean who, who likes inflation? Nobody likes well, inflation, but, they, but there are people who say, well, what we're doing now is not – you know, we, we can handle the inflation that would result. Well, the, the, t- Tim Geithner and Bernanke and the president and Larry Summers think they can soak it up again when the time comes. But meanwhile, they're pumping – unprecedented liquidity into the American global system. And I just can only say good luck, Mr. President, in soaking up that excess liquidity. I think that's what that's what Mrs. Merkel reacted to. I mean, her, I mean, if the Germans believe in one God, it's the independence of the central bank. He's exactly right that what the U.S. is doing is almost a recipe for creating inflation it you know interest rates at basically 0% pouring money into the system but of course that's not something bernanke doesn't know he knows that he he is trying to inflate our our money supply and inflate our economy because he's really worried about deflation and just a quick primer david because this this is one concept in economics that always confuses me the reason in america we see deflation as worse is because if 
when there's deflation, when, when I'm thinking, well, if I, I build a factory today for a million dollars and I start selling products, I'm only going to be able to sell them for half as much six months from now and half again a year from now. Um, I'm, I'm not going to make enough money to pay back my factory. So no one builds factories. No one invests. People uh, don't shop either because why should I buy a car today when it'll be cheaper a month from now or a year from now? That's the general theory that says deflation is worse than inflation. And, and, and since we do seem to be in a potentially deflationary period, they're panicking by spurring um, inflation. But, but obviously in Germany and, 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 and for many people in the U.S., that's really, really scary. Right. And the other argument is that, look, right now, you know, when the economy is in recession, that's when you got to lower interest rates to try and help with the recovery. So I, I took our U.S. economy for a sort of doctor's visit to get a reaction to this. I went to a place that gives a lot of advice to countries that are, let's face it, sometimes sick but in denial about it. I'm talking about the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Carlo Cottarelli, I'm the director of the Fiscal Affairs Department of the IMF. Grazie mille. Prego. <laughs> Let me give you a hypothetical. Suppose we have a country, GDP, say, around $13 trillion. Its central bank has been pushing as much money as possible into the economy. Meanwhile, the government is racking up a huge uh, debt. Would you tell this country to be, would the IMF tell this country to be worried about inflation? I mean, what we have uh, been telling, not this country, but uh, all our members, is that uh, uh, there is a need uh, in the short run for macroeconomic policies to support uh, economic activity. But when, uh, later on, the private sector recovers, then over the medium term, unless there is an exit from uh, this supporting activity, then there, is, there could be a problem of inflation. But the problem is the medium term. They may arise when there is too much activity. And at the moment, there is still a weakness in economic activity. At some point down the road, won't the Fed have to suckle this money out of the economy that it's been pushing in? Yes, as I said, uh, there will be at one point uh, a time when both uh, the Fed and the other central banks and governments, we will have to withdraw from the economic, the, the, the activities that are undertaking now. As I said, the moment has not yet come, but there is a need for every central bank and for every government to have a strategy, to so start thinking now about how to exit when the moment comes. Will that be painful when they do that? I don't think that it will be painful if it is done uh, in an appropriate way, in the sense that uh, when the moment comes and, these, uh, um, and the, the moment of exiting this operation comes, uh, that will be the moment when uh, the economic activity of the private sector is, uh, is recovering. So if things are done properly, it should be done in an orderly way that is not, uh, that is not too painful. But of course, uh, uh, in practice, there may be difficulties. There's reasons why it can be difficult. You know, there's this saying that the Fed's job is to take the punch bowl away just when the party gets going. And it's meaning to to stop the flood of money just when people start making some money and, and they like that flood of money. But that's a really tough call. It's really hard to know when that right moment is. Uh, an awful lot of people blame the current crisis in no small part on Alan Greenspan not taking the punch bowl away earlier in 2003 or 2004. But it's pretty hard for anyone to argue that right now the party's going strong and it's time to take the punch bowl away. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty crappy party right now. <laughs> it's a pretty lousy party. There's only a few people here and no one's really dancing. Um, yeah, I, I don't think this would be a good moment to take the punch bowl away, probably at this particular party. 
All right, but we'll get back to you when that time is coming. Right. So th- this party has been so lame, and, and, and by party, I'm still talking about the U.S. economy. I get lost in our own metaphors sometimes. Um, we keep seeing these articles that mention Plan B. You know, if you lose your job, you can always become an organic farmer or something. Or, or a rock star that's always popular. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I often think that there are not <laughs> enough middle-aged bald rock stars. Um, but there's this other kind of Plan B we also are hearing about, and it's not the big dream ambition Plan B. It's the sort of sadder safety net job Plan B. Yeah, where you get a mortgage banker who gets canned and has to take a job in public radio or something. Or running a paper route. Uh, I actually saw a thing the other day about uh, a, a guy on Wall Street who became a cab driver and said he really actually liked it better than being <laughs> on Wall Street. So so we got a real reality check the other day where we learned that in a, in a lot of cases you can't even get that sort of lower expectation safety job if you need it. It came from our listener, Laura Waite. She runs a law practice with her husband in Bellingham, Washington. They'd advertised for a new receptionist, and the last time they hired one was three years ago. And Laura Waite says they got 40 or 50 resumes back then. She told Planet Money's Laura Conaway that this time around they expected a flood and they got it. We actually put in our ad no drop-ins because we were afraid we'd have a lot of people coming in trying to make face-to-face contact to leave the resume and that can be kind of disruptive, but uh, clearly there are a lot of people who stated in their cover letters they've just been laid off due to downsizing, and there are a lot of people out there looking for work, a lot more so than, than I expected. More than 100 resumes so far for that one receptionist position. Laura Waite is watching one of the big problems in the job market right now, and it's that layoffs have been slowing down, but people who've been laid off already are having a much harder time finding work. Economists describe this as uh, sort of inflow and outflow. People are flowing into unemployment, but they're taking a lot longer to flow out of it. The average job search right now is about 22 and a half weeks long, which is just shy of six months. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco just published a paper about this inflow-outflow problem. We'll link to it on our blog today. But you don't need a lot of jargon to understand it. Here's the list of people who applied for Laura Waite's receptionist gig. Uh, there are two business owners. One owns a bed and breakfast, the other a recycling company, a mortgage broker, a few bank employees, one of whom has been working in the financial sector since 1984, two real estate agents, a flight attendant, an executive chef at a four-star resort, a licensed registered nurse, someone with a master's of education, uh, a gentleman with a master's of divinity, a woman who holds a master's of science and criminal justice, a woman with an MA in clinical psychology who's licensed as a marriage and family counselor, and someone whose experience included being a full-time journalist on two daily newspapers. And how much does this receptionist job pay? We pay between 10 and $14 an hour. Adam, you know this reminds me of how you were telling your cousin he needed to go to school and get an advanced degree or he was going to be left behind by the global economy. Right, and what I learned is that Going to school does increase your average income, but also, like in the case of my cousin DJ, having a lot of skills does increase your income. You know, education and skills do increase your income overall, on average, over the long term. (laughs) But right now, it probably does not feel that way to an awful lot of people who've invested a lot of time in getting those skills and education. Yeah, it's it's just a hard time to be sending out those resumes. And it is not exactly true to be getting these resumes from overqualified people either. How do you 
deal with getting that many resumes? I mean, of this list of people here, how many of these people are you actually going to meet? Oh, we'll probably interview like five of them. And 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 the list I read you, we're not interviewing any of those people. I mean, I was disheartened to see them apply, but we have so many qualified people apply that we couldn't ever kind of think outside the box and talk to someone who's got really interesting experience that's not related to what we're looking for. So You need somebody who can run the desk. Yeah, and there are a lot of people with 10, 15, 20 years of experience doing that yeah. who applied. We asked Laura Wade to see if a couple of the overqualified applicants would talk to us, and, and none of them actually wanted to. David, I think that does it for us. We do want to hear your stories about this employment picture and the economy overall, good and bad. Keep sending in your letters, pictures, and comments. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. Or stop by our blog at npr.org slash money. We do have one final indicator today. It is the number 26. Our fabulous producer, Caitlin Kenny, just turned 26. Happy birthday, Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making this podcast possible. Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. The problem.